What was the last mistake you made? Was it a small one? A big one? A life-altering one? One you could laugh about later? How about a cooking mistake? You made the cookies, but you forgot the sugar. The guacamole turned brown. The butter chicken had no butter. You made sizzling chicken seasig, but there was no sizzle. The spicy jollof rice just wasn't very spicy. Big mistakes. Or you've made a mistake getting in the wrong line. I always do this at immigration when arriving at the airport. You look and you scan and you want to pick the shortest line. Without fail, I pick the line that ends up having the 18 children who all happen to lose their passport that day at the airport. And we're all stuck. Here's what I'm going to do from now on. I'm going to scan the crowd. I'm going to pick the line I think is shortest. And then I'm going to walk past that line to another line. That's what I'm going to do. Maybe for you, it's a big WhatsApp mistake. You know what I'm talking about. You type something really personal, and you hit send, and then your heart stops when you realize you sent the message to the wrong person, a really, really wrong person. You panic. You start praying, please no blue check marks. Please no blue check marks. Stay gray. Stay gray. Stay gray. And in a panic, you delete the messages. And you wonder, oh no, did I select delete just on my phone or delete for everyone? I don't even know. You were so frazzled. You were just clicking everything you could click. And now what's done is done. And then you wonder, even if it's gone, what will they think about the 14 deleted messages on the WhatsApp thread? You realize life is basically over and you grab one of those sugarless cookies you made and you decide to give up WhatsApp. Well, at least for the next 15 minutes. It's a mistake. Have you ever made a ministry mistake? I remember one time we were in Mexico in the villages among the Tarahumara Indians, and I took a group of students there, and we were sharing the gospel there in the village. And in that village, there were no man-made toilets. And so what you had to do is you, we, we brought our own toilet paper, and you had to burn the toilet paper after you used it. Well, one morning, uh, one of our students, I'll never forget it, but he ran across the village to, to us, and he was screaming, I've set the village on fire. <laughs> the village is on fire. So my buddy James and I got in our van, and we drove across the village, and there was a fire there, and we did whatever we could to contain and build a perimeter around the fire. Thankfully, we did, and the fire was stopped here we were trying to bring the gospel to the unreached, and instead we're almost burning down their village. Now, I'm no genius, but that's a terrible mission strategy. You won't find that in any evangelism book. It was a mistake. Now, we've all seen sporting mistakes, and you feel so bad for that person. It's the missed penalty kick. It's the own goal in the World Cup. When I was a child, I remember watching a university basketball championship game, and at the very end, the two, one team was down by two points, and the star player had the ball. He was dribbling down the court, had a chance to win the game, and he called timeout. Problem is, they had no timeouts, and in basketball, that's a special foul, and they lost the championship game. It was a mistake. Well, there are also mistakes that cost lives. The lack of lifeboats on the Titanic, 
There are miscalculations in war and battles that cost lives. What was your last mistake? What was your last sinful decision or mistake? Maybe you didn't lose the team, the championship, or sink a ship, but think back to your life. We've all made mistakes, little ones and big ones. Some just poor choices, but others that were clearly sin and rebellion. Whether sinful or not, we can all learn from our mistakes. They can be a humbling guide and a warning to us. The question we want to ask ourselves this morning is, how do we respond to our mistakes? How do we respond to our sin? Well, that's the question Israel's facing in our scripture passage this morning. How are they going to respond to their epic and sinful mistake? Well, if you have a Bible, you could turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 12. You'll also find it in your bulletin. You could follow along there or in your own Bible. You'll find it after the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and you'll find 1 Samuel. We've been walking through this book over the past several months, and today we find ourselves in chapter 12. Chapter 12 really divides itself into two, two, two areas, two sections. In verses 1 through 13, we'll see their big mistake. We'll see Israel's big mistake. And in verses 14 through 25, we'll see a grace greater than our biggest mistakes. That's our outline. Number one, a big mistake. Number two, a grace greater than our biggest mistakes. Well, first, a big mistake. We've seen that Israel already had a king, but they wanted to be like the other nations. They wanted security and safety from an earthly king. God tells Samuel, okay, give the people what they want. A worldly king they want, a worldly king they're going to get. And Saul was tall, dark, and handsome. But that's about it. He looked good on the outside, but his heart wasn't right with God. There was no party at his inauguration at Gilgal. There was no dancing and singing, just Samuel reiterating their mistake. And now in chapter 12, Samuel's going to give a fuller account of what's happened. They're still at Gilgal. Some say this is Samuel's farewell address. He is transitioning from judge, but he's still going to be ministering to Israel. He still will be preaching. He's still alive and will be serving in Israel. And this speech is it's kind of like a courtroom scene. Samuel will be the judge one last time. And he's going to call two witnesses to the stand. Samuel starts out in verse 1, bringing himself to the witness stand. This first witness is a surprise. It's Samuel himself. He takes off his judge robe. He sits in the witness stand. And there in verse 1, he says, you asked for a king. Well, I provided one for you. I did what you asked for. In verse 2, he says, I'm old and gray. And that's a bit funny. They would have seen his gray hair. That would have been obvious, but here he admits it. He's old and gray. Of course, remember that he dies around the age of 58, so he's not really old at all, but it is what it is. He's not ashamed of his graying hair. Some of us don't like to admit 
when we're going gray. Samuel seems proud of it. In fact, it's part of his point. He's saying, there's your king. He's tall. He's dark. He's, he's handsome. He's, he's stronger than me. You wanted confidence in an earthly leader. Well, here's an earthly leader that, earthly speaking, you can have confidence in. But you should have stuck with me. I've got gray hair. I'm a bit older. You should have stuck with me. Why? Well, because of my integrity. Well, notice he doesn't say anything more about his boys here. All he says is, my sons are with you. That's all he mentions. Remember, they aren't an encouragement or credit to him. Remember, his boys aren't walking with God. But Samuel was in charge. Samuel was leading. And at the end of verse 2, he says, I've walked before you from my youth until this day. He reminds them from that day when my mother Hannah brought me to the priest's house, to Eli. From that day on through to adulthood, I've been walking with God. Samuel testifies there in the witness stand. I've been faithful. Verse 3, I've not abused the office in any way. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hands have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me and I will restore it to you. I told you, uh, Israel, an earthly king is going to take, take, take. But have I ever done that to you? Have I ever stolen from you? They respond to Samuel, no. No, you haven't. Samuel says, verse 5, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. Well, Samuel vindicates his own leadership. Samuel can't hide his gray hair or his sons. But there's nothing wrong with his leadership, nothing wrong with his character. No reason Israel should have cast him aside. Samuel's declared innocent by the true judge, Yahweh, the God of Israel. Now, of course, the innocence of Samuel meant the indictment of the people. They shouldn't have asked for a king because they already had Samuel. There was another reason they shouldn't have asked for a king. They had Yahweh. The second to take the witness stand was God himself. Now, God doesn't actually defend himself here, but Samuel does. He, he gives us a history lesson of God's gracious intervention in Israel. Before asking for a king, verse 7, Israel should have paused, they should have stood still and acknowledged they already had an amazing king who had performed righteous deeds for them. Verse 8, it was the Lord who sent Moses and Aaron. It was the Lord who brought them out of Egypt. The plagues, the exodus, the parting of the Red Sea. All that was God. Verse 9, even when your fathers forgot Yahweh, Samuel says, and in one judgment they were sold into the hand of a Canaanite leader named Sisera. They were sold into the hand of the Philistines, into the hand of King Moab. Even then, even then, when Israel cried out to God and repented of their idolatry, God saved them. This happened time and time again. That's just one example. Well, they failed to heed the warning of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 8. You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you. 
Take care lest you forget the Lord your God. This was important because later on in that same chapter, God says, if you forget me, you'll perish. The only way to life is to follow me. Choose life. Our main theme of the book of Deuteronomy is to remember. I wonder if many of our problems would go away if we just stop and remember what God has done. If we just recall his mighty works. In our moments of struggle, we could just sit down and turn on a DVD recording in our minds and think back to all that God has brought us through, the blessings and the guidance along the way. Turning on that video today helps prepare us for tomorrow. Israel forgot the Lord their God. They stopped playing the video that one day and then the next and the next, and pretty soon God was just a distant memory. They should have remembered where they were. It was Gilgal. I mean, Gilgal was the place that they all gathered together and encamped after crossing the dry ground of the Jordan River as they entered the promised land. It was there they built this Ebenezer. They built this memorial to God's faithfulness. They're gathered there again, but they forgot. Forgetfulness is a foe to our faith. Forgetfulness is the great enemy to our sustained and ongoing faith. Oh, friend, could your problem be that you've forgotten God? You've forgotten Him at work. You commute to your work without even a thought of God. A dating relationship, you've succumbed to worldly standards. In your anxieties at school, you don't really feel like God is going to provide for you. Now, what is it for you? You're looking back at God's faithfulness. And what are the Gilgals in your life? Do you remember? Oh, friend, don't let forgetfulness be your enemy. Reflect on God's kindness to you. In fact, do that today. Go to lunch after the service with a fa- with family member or friends or fellow church members here. Go to lunch together and let this be the beginning of your uh, lunch discussion. Ask one another, how has the Lord been faithful to you in your life? You can get even more specific. How has the Lord been faithful to you in this past year? We're coming to the end of 2019. It's good to look back. Just spend some time at lunch just going around and listening to one another. It'll encourage you. It'll encourage your fellow believer. Remember God's faithfulness together. Israel had a spiritual amnesia. That was a big mistake. And the point Samuel is making is you shouldn't have discarded me as your judge and leader, and you really, really shouldn't have have discarded me. Yahweh as your true king. But they discarded both Samuel and Yahweh. Look at all God has done for you. Verse 11, he even sent you judges. If you remember the time of the judges, this was when they all did what was right in their own eyes. They all walked in evil ways and did whatever they wanted to. Even in those days of the judges, you see there God sent judges, Jerubal. That was another name for Gideon, Barak, Jephthah, and then Samuel himself. And God used these judges to deliver them from their enemies. When Israel remembered the Lord, he saved them. But when they didn't, their circumstances crushed them. 
Now Samuel lays out the most recent example. Verse 12, Israel, here's your latest mistake. We've been talking about this. It was a, a, a big mistake. Israel, here was your epic, horrible mistake. Under the attack of Nahash, the Ammonites, you demanded an earthly king. At the threat of losing your physical eyes, they reveal a much bigger problem than a lack of eyesight. No, the Israelites were spiritually blind. Samuel says, instead of crying out to the Lord, your king, for help, you cried out to the Lord for a new king. They were so bold as to say, God, you're the problem. And so verse 13, God gave them what they wanted. Behold, your king... Here's the taller, stronger, here's the, here's the handsome earthly king you wanted to go before you in battle. Well, Samuel defends himself. I was blameless. You should have stuck with me as judge. Samuel defends Yahweh. He's blameless. You should have stuck with him as king. Well, this case is airtight. The proof is all there. Israel made a ridiculous request for royalty. But at this point in our text, there's still no response. No response from Israel. Maybe this has happened to you before. You've made the perfect airtight argument, and that person just doesn't believe you. You've laid out all the facts. You've laid out the case. They just don't believe you. Perhaps this has happened with your young child. You've pointed to the cookie jar, and it's empty. No cookies in there. And your child, bless their heart, denies it. You show them the cookie jar. You tell them that there was a cookie in that jar with dad's name on it five minutes ago. You tell them that was daddy's cookie, that they knew that was daddy's cookie. You tell them that you've been dreaming about that cookie, that you've been dreaming about it all day long, but they just shake their head. No, daddy, I I don't know what you're talking about. And it's obvious what happened. They deny it, but you see what they can't see. The chocolate all over their face. You bring a mirror to them and you show them, you back up the claim with the visual aid and it's all there. The proof is there. Well, this is what Samuel's going to do. He's laid out the case and now he's going to verify the verbal truth with a visual aid. To prove his words, he says it's going to thunder and rain. You'll see the thunderstorm and you'll know, Israel, that I'm speaking for God. This was a miracle because this is after the rainy season. This is during the wheat harvest, and it never rained. Not a drop of rain would come during the the wheat harvest, the dry season. It's like if there was a thunderstorm here in July. Now, it hardly rains in Dubai at all, but in July, we don't even check our weather app. Have you noticed that? We don't check it. We just get up the next day, and we know we're going to sweat I don't think they even update the Dubai weather app in July. I think the weather people just take the month off. They just trick us. That's because every day is the same, 50 million degrees Celsius and perfectly sunny. Every day, the same forecast, the weather app could freeze up and stop working and nobody would notice. This here would be like an epic thunderstorm in Dubai in July. And it rains and pours. Just like Samuel said it would. It confirms his words. In verse 16, they stood still and they saw this great thing before their eyes. Now, before this time, those two Hebrew verbs, stand still, 
see, it's only used one other time together, and it's back in Exodus chapter 14. It was just before Moses parted the Red Sea. Moses commands the people, pay attention. Pay attention and see my saving power. That's what Samuel's doing here. Samuel's getting the people's attention. Israel, you've made a big mistake. It's a bit hard to read. We're sobered by Israel's mistakes. We want them to get it. And as we read this, we're reminded of our own mistakes. You know, every one of our situations is different. Maybe as you consider my question at the outset of the sermon, when did you make your last mistake? What was it? Maybe there's a whole bunch of mistakes that come to your mind. Maybe there's a whole bunch of sinful actions that flood your mind this morning. Well, what do we do when we've made a big mistake? What do we do when we've fallen in sin? Where do we go? Well, we look to a grace that's greater than our biggest mistakes. That's the second thing we see this morning. Number two, a grace greater than our biggest mistakes. What should we do after we've made a mistake? Verses 14 and 15. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. This is a remarkably encouraging statement. I mean, this is remarkable. Remember, Israel had already made their epic mistake. They had rejected their king and asked for a new king. Samuel's saying, even though you've messed up, if you and your king follow Yahweh now, it will be well. This is incredible. This is a grace greater than all their sin. And friend, the same holds true for us. We've made a mistake. We don't forget our mistakes, but we don't wallow in our mistakes. We turn to God and we commit ourselves to a renewed obedience to him. So you messed up yesterday. Well, be obedient today. By God's grace, follow him today. You didn't pray yesterday? Well, pray today. You gossiped yesterday? Well, be encouraging today. You had an outburst of anger yesterday. Be gracious and tender-hearted today. You've had a grudge yesterday. Forgive today. With the Lord's help and by his grace, get today right. You can't change yesterday, but you can live rightly today. Let the mistakes and sin of yesterday lead you to the faithfulness to God today. Well, this would be a critical moment for Israel. Will they learn from their sin and mistakes? Will they turn from their sin? If not, then they really would be like all the other nations. That was their heart's desire. If they turn away from God, that's exactly what they're going to look like. Well, those words at the end of verse 15 are another warning. We had some comforting words. Now there's a strong warning. Israel, come to God or else the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Those are terrifying words. I mean, imagine the hand of the Lord against you. 
And there's nothing worse than that, nothing more terrifying than that. And yet here, God is giving them yet another opportunity to be his distinct people. Did you see the grace of God in these verses? I mean, this is incredible. Put yourself in the story. No matter what you've done, God's grace is greater than your sin. I mean, think to the parable of the prodigal son, the father. He's scanning on the horizon, and he sees his son while he was still a long way off. That meant dad was looking out for a son while he had been gone. And he sees him, and while he was still a long way off, he ran to his son. And though his son stunk and was, was disheveled and had, had given up all his inheritance, the father just hugs him and the father gives him his robe and the father gives him his ring. And the father says, you know what? Let's take our fattened calf. Let's take our best calf and let's celebrate tonight because my son who was once lost is now found. And that parable illustrates this great truth that God will always take back an unrepentant. I should change my phrase there. God will always take back the sinner who's truly repentant. God will always take take back the repentant sinner. Friend, no matter what you did last year or last night, God opens his arms to you. God will take you back if you see his grace and you repent of your sin. God's grace is overwhelming. Look to God. This is what Israel did, at least here, verse 19. And all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. We have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. Israel gets it right, at least for the time being. They confess that asking for a king was evil. Now, they can't undo what they've done, but they can reconcile with God. I mean, notice their choice of words here. Notice that they tell Samuel to pray to the Lord your God. They recognize their sin and that they had forfeited the right to call him our God. They realize their sin deserves death, and they're finally taking God's side against their own sin. And then verse 20 is another amazing word to us. It's beautiful. Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. I love these words. Do not be afraid. Yes, you've done this sinful thing. You've done this evil. That's true. There's no sugarcoating of the sin here. There's no trying to hide it. There's no trying to suppress it. No trying to pretend that it didn't happen. The sin is out there in the open, both from Samuel, from God, and now even the people themselves. And yet Samuel, from God himself, says, do not be afraid. I mean, these words are stunning. Israel, this isn't the end of your story. 
Keep following the Lord. Verse 21, don't follow after empty things. Those are those worthless idols. That word literally means useless. That's what an idol is. In other parts of Scripture, it refers to an empty wasteland or a desert. Israel, reject those worthless idols. They can't do anything for you. Serve the Lord with all your heart. Well, friend, maybe you've made a mess of your life. You've made your share of mistakes and sin. You've taken an unwise job. You've made a poor university decision. You've compromised your immorality in a relationship. You've hurt your marriage or family. You've slandered someone and you've caused division. Well, friend, hear me say this today. And if you hear me say only one thing this morning, hear me say this, God's grace is greater than all your sin. God's grace is greater. We can't change the past, but we can change today. Redeemer Church, walk in obedience today. Today is the greatest day of your life because it's the first day of the rest of your life. Today, you can start being faithful to God. It's the most important day in your life because it's the day you're living in now. If you've been foolish and unfaithful to God today, right now, you can turn from your sin and you can trust in Jesus to forgive you, to walk with you, to be with you. As long as you haven't breathed your last breath, it's not too late to repent of your sin and turn to God. Like the thief on the cross, if you remember there at Calvary, Jesus being crucified right next to him, there was a thief being crucified. And right there on the cross, hours before he died, the thief turns to Jesus and says, remember me in paradise. So you can do that with just three hours to spare. And you can be of good cheer because you can know for certain that God will forgive you. Now, we don't know when we're down to the last three hours of our lives. The thief knew he was dying, and he cried out. You and I don't know what tomorrow holds, but we know who holds tomorrow in his hands. And if you ask him for forgiveness today, your tomorrow will be secure. Like the thief on the cross, you have to look to Jesus. You have to turn, and you have to look to Jesus. And look upon his face. In the C.S. Lewis book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's four children. And they walk through a magical wardrobe into the land called Narnia. It's a land of talking animals and wonder. Edmund is one of the children. He's a disgruntled child. He likes to complain. He's never quite content. He falls vulnerable to the seductions of the evil white witch who temporarily rules Narnia. She has magical abilities to make things look like they aren't. Well, Edmund falls prey to her lies, but over time he begins to see the truth. Eventually he comes around and he sees his selfishness. His heart softens through the mercy of Aslan the lion, the Christ-like figure in the story. He's brought back to his siblings, but now he's not the same boy. He's been transformed. And I love this. C.S. Lewis writes, Edmund is now looking all the time at Aslan's face. 
He's gotten past thinking about himself, and he looks to Aslan, and Aslan takes him aside and says something to him. We never find out what he says. All we know is that from that point forward, Edmund is a wise and good king. Well, friend, yes, we've all sinned. We've all made mistakes. Even so, look to King Jesus. Look to his face, and he will change your life. Now keep looking today, tomorrow, and for the rest of your life. Look to Jesus, and he will transform you. Verse 22 is beautiful, isn't it? The Lord will not forsake his people. If you look to Jesus, you look upon his face, he will not forsake you because he will not forsake his name. If you're in Christ, he will never leave you nor forsake you. He doesn't turn away from his people. He won't reject his people because of his reputation. Now, not in a way that you can twist God's arm. We saw that earlier in 1 Samuel with rabbit foot theology. We don't coerce God by pointing to his reputation. We saw earlier God can and will temporarily allow defeat and humiliation, but God will act in this world for his namesake and his glory. That's of his utmost concern, and it's the greatest gift he can give to this world. It's what we so desperately need. We need his glory to shine in our hearts and in this world. Well, how do we respond to God's grace now? Well, verses 24 and 25. Fear the Lord and consider the great things he's done. Well, fearing the Lord isn't the same thing as being afraid of the boogeyman in a horror film. Fear is to be in awe of God. Fear is to consider the greatness of God. Fear is to look at the, the great oceans of the earth and to see the strength and might of God. To fear God means to understand that God made it all, that he rules, that he reigns, that he will judge us. No, we fear him not because we're scared of him, but we fear him because he's so great, because he's God and we're not. We fear him, but we also look back at the great things he's done. If he's gone to such great lengths to save us, why wouldn't he keep us to the end? Our salvation is a gift, and he keeps us to the end as a gift. Now consider God's patience with you in your sin as you recall your past sinful mistakes, as you recall those things. How time and time again, God has been patient to keep you, extending forgiveness to you time and time again. Oh, Redeemer Church, is there any better truth than this? The news that God will keep you to the end. That's the best news. Not an upcoming holiday, not a pay raise, not a clean bill of health, nothing. Israel was not deserving of another chance, and yet we see a fifth, a sixth a hundredth chance. Israel had rebelled time and time again. Remember, this passage is after all the grumbling in the wilderness. This passage is after the time of the judges. This passage is after the time that they said to Yahweh, we reject you, give us a better king. At some point, one might wonder, when might God's grace run out? When will his mercy be exhausted? Remember that time when the apostle Peter asks about forgiveness? What does Jesus say to him? Well, how many times should we forgive a brother who sinned against us? Peter first says, well, up to seven times? 
That sounds like a pretty big number. Imagine someone sinning against you seven times, one after another after another. That seems to be a lot of forgiveness. That seems to be really patient and loving demeanor to just to, 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 to look aside a transgression seven times. To Peter, that was a big number. But Jesus has a different kind of math, and it's not a two plus two equals four kind of math. His mathematics of grace makes no sense. Seven times, that's not enough. How about 77 times? That's a big number. Also, seven is often the number of completeness in the Bible. The point isn't the precise number, but that forgiveness is not something you can track on your calculator. There's no limit to God's grace. We can't out-sin God's grace. Of course, that doesn't give us a license to sin, but it does give us hope in our repentance for sin. No matter what you've done, you can come to God. We know this because God has first come to us. Jerry Zamora read this for us from Romans chapter 5 earlier in the service, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That while we were enemies of God, he reconciled us to himself. What's comforting to see the Israelites ask Samuel to pray and to mediate on their behalf. That's a wonderful picture here in these last verses. Oh, Samuel, pray for us. Samuel, mediate for us. It's a beautiful picture, but friends, we have an even greater privilege of approaching God's throne through the mediation of Jesus. For all his virtue, Samuel remained a sinner. Ultimately, even he couldn't stand before God on his own merits. But Jesus is the greater prophet, priest, and king. He's the one interceding for us even now at the right hand of the Father. 1 Timothy 2.5 says that there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, this God-man Christ Jesus, fully God and fully man. He came to us. Jesus didn't need his own Savior. Now Samuel would grow old and grow feeble, but Jesus never does. Samuel will one day die and be buried, but Christ Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, conquering sin and death, and is leading us now. Oh, monarchs come and monarchs go. But the kingdom of God is ruled and reigned by King Jesus forever and ever. I'll turn to Jesus today, look at Jesus' face, and enjoy a security that's more stable than any earthly king can provide. God's love is never failing. His grace is greater than all of our sin. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your love, mercy, and grace. Your forgiveness is stunning in light of our rebellion and sin. It exceeds our guilt and washes away our offense. Now, thank you for pouring out your love for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.